If you've ever thought of quilting your own projects but just don't know where to start, I have the perfect first steps for you. I've put together a PDF guide. I call it Three Steps Toward Freehand Freedom. These are the baby steps, but they can help you move past your overwhelm and show you that yes indeed, freehand quilting can be learned. So if you'd like to snag this PDF, there's a link in the show notes, or if you're an Instagram user, just message me three steps. That's the number three, S-T-E-P-S, and I'll send you that link. Let today be the day you get started. I think that as you grow and develop and change and learn new things, you're adding skills and awareness and knowledge and all of those things build on each other. So I think even if it's something you do that you don't like, well, that's important to know too, you know. I'll never make a Dresden plate, I couldn't stand it. But, you know, I think that everything you do, everyone you meet, um, it can lead to other opportunities. Welcome to Measure Twice, Cut Once the podcast where we hear quilters and other crafters' stories and draw encouragement and even life lessons from them. Joining me today to tell us her story is Lindsay McRae. I'm your host, Susan Smith, and I'm coming to you from my quilting studio, Stitched by Susan. This is where my long arm, Lucy, and I spend our days doing freehand, edge-to-edge quilting. Now, if you're not a quilter and those terms mean nothing to you, it's basically doodling on the surface of a quilt with a 50-pound writing utensil, needle and thread attached and at high speeds. And if you are a machine quilter, I invite you to tune in to the live and unscripted events that I host on my YouTube channel, also called Stitched by Susan. These happen on the first and third Friday of every month. And most often I am completing the long arm quilting of an entire project from beginning to end. So I invite you to kind of look over my shoulder as I do that project, as I encounter whatever challenges may be within it and talk my way through it. And these episodes, because they're streamed live, are also interactive, so you can ask questions and get answers about the project while I'm working on it. So once again, those happen over on my YouTube channel, Stitched by Susan, on the first and third Friday of every month. Today's Pins and Needles is brought to you by The Will and Dave Show. Hi, I'm the Will Half of the Will and Dave Show, a short little podcast that myself and the eponymous Dave like to record talking about the things that really matter to us, whether that's social, political, or pop culture. Usually we don't see eye to eye, but more often than not, we can find some common ground in there somewhere. And now, back to pins and needles with a quick tip for all you sharp quilters out there. I've been working lately on neatly folding some of the fabric that I've maybe just kind of stuffed in my shelf when I get home from the fabric store. But I do love a neat stack of fabric so that I can see what I have in my stash. So I keep next to my fabric storage area a leftover cardboard insert from a bolt of fabric. And I know you can get these from any of your local fabric shops. They have tons and tons of them left over. So I just keep one next to my shelves. And for any piece of yardage that's over, oh, maybe half or three quarters of a yard, I do it on the floor. I lay my fabric out straight and I put my cardboard piece on one end of it and then I just flip one end over and then flip, 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 flip that little cardboard to roll it up as though it were a mini bolt. When you get to the end of your fabric, you can simply grasp the cardboard and slide it right out. And then I just fold it in half 
and that shape and size fits beautifully on my stash shelf and it keeps everything really organized you can see a nice fold of each fabric as you're looking down over your library of fabrics it's a beautiful thing you know i love my coffee i've got a steaming cup in my hand as we speak if you're interested in supporting this podcast you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash stitched by susan there for the price of one delicious coffee you are able to make a one-time contribution thank you so very much for your support and maybe take a moment now to refill your cup as you settle back to enjoy today's interview My guest is Lindsay Cole McRae. Lindsay has a deep love for textiles of all kinds and feed sacks in particular. She shows them, speaks about them, and has written a book about them that has over 800 gorgeous images. It's my current favorite coffee table book. Lindsay has stories galore, both about her experiences and opportunities as a writer and about the people and circumstances which made feed sacks the collectible fabric they are today. And bonus, she learned to sew on a treadle sewing machine too. Lindsay, welcome to my studio. I'm so glad you could join me. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. I first was introduced to your work by one of my dear friends. And um, you have designed fabric lines, so she had some of those. But what really caught my attention was your book on feed sacks. So you know I'm going to talk about that today. <laughs> but we've, before we dive into some of the current things, maybe give me a brief look at how you were introduced to quilting and how that became part of your life. Okay. Well, my mom taught me to sew. She was an amazing seamstress, sewist, and she was very, very good at sewing clothing. She's very construction oriented. And so she took couture classes and millinery classes and was very into clothing and taught me to sew. But I was not that construction oriented or or I'm not as detail oriented as she was. And so she and I would butt heads. Um, she had a really amazing necky sewing machine from Germany that she was very careful of, and I was not that careful. And so she ultimately bought me a tread, uh, treadle for $10 at a garage sale, and that was what I sewed on when I was young. Um, and when I graduated from college, she gave me a sewing machine, a little singer, and I made curtains and that sort of thing, but nothing too, you know, spectacular. Um, and then... Uh, I went, went, I went back to graduate school when I was 40 and got a degree in journalism. And I got a job at the University of Iowa as a writer and editor. And I walked into one of my colleagues' rooms one day and she had this quilt hanging on the back of her chair. And I said, oh, that's beautiful. Where did you get it? And she said, I made it. And I said, well, you know, I've always wanted to learn to quilt. I always, through all of this, loved fabric and color. And um, she said, well, come over this weekend. And I was Nothing like, like okay. <laughs> so uh, she was a young woman, younger than I, and, which was unusual and for a quilter at that point. So I went over and this was, um, oh, how long ago was this? Maybe in the tw- early, I've been quilting, you know, more than 20 years, I guess now, but okay. not a whole lot more. And um, I went over, I learned to quilt. I loved it. I went crazy. I made, you know, eight quilts my first year and finished them and was just having the time of my life. And um, my job at the university was fun, but it, some things were, I, I get bored easily and I was looking for some other challenges. And um, my daughter's roommate's best friend's sister was an editor at um, American Patchwork and Quilting. 
And I decided to contact her and see if she was interested in having me doing some writing for her. And um, she was. My very first profile was in Quilts and More of Amy Butler. And um, I've written for them ever since, those magazines. And that's, that's how my career in writing about textiles sort of got started and when I started quilting. So, Okay. That all makes sense. Now, see, I didn't see you in those magazines. I'll go look for them now that I know that. My first introduction, as I said, was your wonderful book on feed sacks. Okay, so when did feed sacks kind of enter the picture? So I was trying to go back and think about that. Um, It must have been somewhere around 2013. A man named Mike Zaz came to our guild. And Mike is from a little town of Ainsworth, Iowa, near here. I live in Iowa City, Iowa. And he... um, had this amazing collection of feed sacks and huge knowledge of feed sacks. And I had never heard of them. I grew up in California, which is not, doesn't mean anything necessarily because feed sacks were found in all 50 States, but I, I didn't know anything about them. And so I uh, was just fascinated. I was just amazed. And at the time I was blogging for Etsy and this was before most people even knew what Etsy was. And I was very sad just the other day I went to look for my, one of my blog posts and they've all been taken off, but I did that for three years. And, um, there, I got more than 200 comments for the post about feed sacks. And I thought, well, gosh, I'm not the only person who's interested in feed sacks. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I started doing more and more research. And at the same time I was a contributing writer and have been for a very long time, um, at uppercase magazine. And, I don't know if you're familiar with Uppercase, but uh, she does beautiful magazine, has a beautiful quarterly magazine and books. And so I wrote to her and, and said, you know, what? let's do a book about feed sacks. And she said, well, I love feed sacks. That's a great idea, but I'm pretty busy right now. Let's think about it in the future. So in the meantime, the University of Iowa Press approached me about doing a book um, about quilts. And they said, you could do whatever you wanted. What kind of ideas do you have? And so I came up with uh, the idea for a book called Art Quilts of the Midwest. And I can talk about that some if we want to. But um, so they they had had a traditional quilt book published and they wanted something a little different. I'm a Californian who's transplanted to Iowa. And one of the things that I have always noticed is that my color sense was a little bit different from my friends who were from the Midwest. I always gravitated towards sort of blues and greens and purples, and they were much more earth tones. You know, that was sort of what their thing was. And so I started thinking about how the the idea of how where you grow up influences your visual aesthetic. And so I um, opened a competition for art quilters to uh, submit quilts that were influenced by life in the Midwest. And we had more than 100 entries, and we selected 20. I had a committee with two artists and myself, and we selected 20. And then I wrote profiles of them, and the book was published, um, and it became the basis of several exhibitions as well. But anyway, that was so I did that. And then next, Janine said, the publisher at Uppercase said, okay, I'm ready. Let's do this book. And so we did the feed sack book. So those two books happened pretty closely together. Um, and, but they were both big adventures. <laughs> well, I highly recommend the feed sack book. It, it's as good as sitting down to read a novel. Honestly, it's filled of course, with photographs of fabrics and of people and places and advertisements and all these things, but just the stories that are in there are so rich. I cannot imagine 
the level of research to find all those stories. Did you get to handle a lot of those different feed sacks? You must have if you were photographing them. Well, so the story of, of how we photographed all those feed sacks is kind of interesting. So this was 2015, I think, when we were putting this together. And um, Mike Zaz had this amazing collection of feed sacks, but he was in the middle of being filmed for a documentary, which is a long story and very interesting, called Saving Brinton, if you ever want to look it up. Um, so we, his feed sacks were not available. So we had to find someone who would let us photograph their feed sacks because I had seven at that point. Hardly enough for a book. Close. But <laughs> Hardly. I, my goal was to approach this as a journalist, not as a collector. Um, I subsequently have changed. I have a ton of feed sacks now. But um, anyway, so we had to find someone with a big collection. So I started putting out feelers and eventually learned about Gloria, um, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm blanking on Gloria's last name, who was from Palmyra, Nebraska. And she was a feed sack expert. She had an amazing collection. Her grandson, Paul Pugsley, also had an amazing collection. And she said, sure, come on and photograph these feed sacks. So Janine, who is in Calgary, Canada, and I spent, I think, something like a week or maybe 10 days, I don't know, total, that was all we were together. The rest of it was all done online, photographing Gloria's feed sack, Gloria Hall. And um, it was amazing. We walked into her house and she had these huge long tables set up, piled with sacks. Oh my goodness. And then she had another whole room that was quilts and feed sack ephemera. And, um, and we spent two days there. She made us BLTs for lunch and we, she lived out in the country and we just used our iPhones and we photographed all the sacks for the books. There are others that were um, from other collections, but that was the majority of what we used in, in the images. And I should say there are 850 images in the book. I mean, it's really a visual treat. You know, I, I thank you for your kind words about the writing, but the visuals are incredible. They absolutely are. Yeah, she gets credit for that. Design. My favorite coffee table book. Okay, so Thank for you. our listeners who maybe don't yet know what feed sacks are, maybe just want to know more about them, give us this, a brief, if you can, you know, a couple paragraphs. Sure. History sure. of feed sacks and, and, and why they came to be used and maybe even what some of the steps were that women took to salvage this fabric. So in the late 1800s, well, in the mid-1800s, the sewing machine became perfected where you had a lock stitch sewing machine. And before that goods were shipped in barrels and boxes and that were bulky. They were took up a lot of space, even when they were empty. And so um, when sacks could be constructed, thanks to the sewing machine and also thanks to the plethora of cotton we had in this country at that time. And that was due largely to slavery. We had, you know, cheap labor and we had, a huge amount of cotton being produced. And so that was sort of this perfect storm where bags became the choice to ship goods. And when we say feed sacks, we do you think we're talking about animal feed and there was animal feed, but there was everything was shipped in sacks, you know, sugar, flour, salt, animal feed, animal seed, hams, ballots, um, Money, you know, we've seen money bags. Bags used to be used for every kind of thing to, to ship. I have a wonderful bag that was had a little label sewn into the bottom of it, a paper label, with which was an address label. And it's um, 
auto parts, like ship your auto parts in this bag. So really bags were used for everything. And the academic name for them, people call them cotton commodity bags. They're all kinds of names, chicken pretties, um, chicken, chicken linen, pretties, um, all sorts of things they're called depending on what was in them. So they were at first plain, they didn't have anything on them. Then logos were, except possibly a logo was stamped on them of the company or what they contained. And then um, in the 20s, manufacturers started realizing that women were using this as free fabric and they started trying to make it more desirable. So they started doing things like printing embroidery patterns on them and think about the classic days of the week dish towels, you know, Monday through Sunday and you're, you would say to your husband, and often these were rural women, not all at all, but many, and you'd say, go back to the feed store and get me Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday because I have the rest. So it also <laughs> became a real way to market to women, which is something that hadn't been done a lot. Um, and so they kept trying to make their bags more desirable and more desirable. And in the late 30s, there were some printed bags before the late 30s, but in 1930s, they didn't really catch on. In 1937, the Percy Kent Bag Company is credited with uh, producing the first printed sacks. And the, the, those printed sacks went on um, probably until the early 60s, 63 or 64. And they are more, there have been documented more than 18,000 different prints and colorways of wow. feed sacks. Wow. So, so those, that's the story of them. And, and then they were used even, for everything. Just reading Sorry, your book ahead. was eye-opening for me because I, I thought of them as kind of 30 style prints, you know, the small scale, the usually floral, right. that sort of thing. But in, from the pictures in your book, I see that they come in just an amazing amount. I mean, Mexican ones and nature ones and plaid ones and just everything under the sun. So that was kind of enlightening for me to see the the huge variety. And of course, all these different printing companies would have had artists for the sole purpose, I'm sure, of designing those. Yes, yes, that's true. And I think they very much tried to follow the, the fabric uh, style of the times. So just like you're saying, you think of them as being the sweet little things, but at the 50s, they're so, I mean, they're kind of coming back around now, geometric and the atomic age and all of that. There are very, very contemporary, modern sort of feed sack prints too. Um, in addition to florals, I think florals were popular all along. And then there were also special, um, you know, they licensed uh, Walt Disney. There were Alice in Wonderland sacks. There were, there's a story, and I don't know if this is true, um, the Gone with the Wind sacks. They made Gone with the Wind feed sacks, and apparently every four months they would issue them in a new colorway so that people who had one would then want the other one. So they, they really, again, the marketing to women. And, and it's one of the things I love because I love that manufacturers realize that women might not have been earning the paycheck, but they had a lot of say in where the family dollar was spent. Yes. And so they marketed to them, you know, yes. and I, I, I love that. And, and found their kind of um, pressure points is not quite the right word, but the, the ways that would reach out to them. And I think of feed sacks a lot of time as flower sacks. That's how my grandmother would have collected them. And mm -hmm. 
Yeah, just like you say, they were looking for different days of the week, or maybe they were looking for blues. And and my grandpa would walk into a feed store, and there would be this wall, you know, of sacks, and he would literally scan them for the blue that he, you know that his wife was huh. looking for, and they just just found those little sweet spots. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the steps that ladies had to take, though, to make this fabric usable? I know over time, the sack producing companies made them a little, you know, more easy to use. But early on, this was out of desperate need that women were using these fabrics. And it was not easy. You didn't just rip open the side seam and start sewing your, your dress out of it. What were some of the steps involved? Well, if you were making a dress, for one thing, you had to have enough to make a dress. So for example, the average size woman's dress was four sacks. Um, I met a woman, Lisa Erlinson in Texas, who told me that one of the ultimate um, insults at her high school was to say that someone was a six sacker or a five sacker, <laughs> which is t- terrible, but funny. Um, and, and uh, yeah, so you had to find the same, you had to find the right number of a single print. And you mentioned your, people going for blues there. Are, I interviewed a lot of people who said they would send a swatch. Their mom would send a swatch to the store with their dad saying, get me more of these, you know, you have to find the same print. And so that was the first step. Although there are certainly things you could make with one sack um, to children's clothes and that sort of thing. And then the other thing, I think probably what you're thinking about too, are the labels, the labels for what was inside were often printed right on the sacks with, you know, big, heavy ink and getting that out to make the sack usable was really hard work really hard work. Um, and there are all sorts of stories about, um, you know, that right on the sack, sometimes they would print the instructions for how to use them, how to rip them open. Cause they were that sort of thread that you pulled a thread and the whole thing came right. loose yes. and then how to get the label off. And they included things like scrubbing it with kerosene and lye and things that were really hard on your hands. Okay. And there's even a Southern, um, folklore, that if you scrubbed your sacks label by the light of a full moon, it would come out more easily. (laughs) So luck with that. Right. So eventually, um, again, trying to make sacks, their sacks more desirable, they figured out that you could put a label, a paper label. And so they would either sew the label into the seam when they sewed the bag up or glue it right on. And then that label could be removed by soaking, um, that kind of thing. So that was another uh, improvement to appeal to women. Yes. So incredibly much easier. I just, you know, again, in reading your book and from my limited knowledge about feed sacks, I am always overwhelmed by the tenacity of these women who saw a resource. And, you know, in the 30s and 40s, there was a whole lot of need and they found Mm -hmm. a way. And to me, that's the spirit that I love that lives on in quilters. This this tenacity, finding a way to make a thing out of what you've got. Mm -hmm. I totally agree, Susan. To me, that's the, that's the big appeal. I mean, I love the fabrics. I love the prints. I love the colors, but I just love the stories of the women who use them. And, you know, these women who had like six kids and they grew all their own vegetables and they raised the chickens and they sewed all the clothes. One of my favorite stories, um, I can't remember the woman's name who told me, but she remembers her mother saying, okay, you need a new dress, um, get the Sears catalog. And it's not that she was going to get a dress out of the Sears catalog, but she could pick the style of dress that she liked. And then once she's done that, her mother would look at it, make up a paper pattern out of newspaper, 
and lay it out on a, on feed sacks and make her that dress. I mean, the talent too, you know, the skill is amazing. Yes. High these level women. skill. Yeah. Yeah. So you are not just a feed sack lover. You also love vintage quilts. You love carpets. Tell us more about some of the other <laughs> textiles that you've fallen in love with. I do love, yes, I do love rugs. I have a number of rugs in my house, but I, I, um, I've just, I just have always loved textiles. My mom, um, had beautiful, she had really great taste and she loved decorating her house. And so I grew up surrounded by lovely textiles and getting an appreciation. My grandmother also had, um, traveled the world and she had textiles from all over the world in her summer cabin. And I, you know, I think that's where I got my love of them. Um, I do try very hard not to collect vintage quilts, although that doesn't always <laughs> hold up, but um, I bought one last weekend, as a matter of fact. Um, but yes, I do I do enjoy vintage quilts. I usually try to make them. I give a lot of talks about feed sacks, and so I try to collect within that category of feed sack quilts. But I also, um, another thing that I've been doing, it started... Um, with the Art Quilts of the Midwest book is curating museum exhibits. And um, so that the Art Quilts of the Midwest went to four quilt museums. It started at the International Quilt Museum and went to the National Quilt Museum in Paducah and so Iowa that, Quilt Museum. And that Texas was originally a book and then it became an exhibit? That Companion is, yes. kind of? To, okay, got it. Yes. Yeah. And that was not anything I ever intended, but I got to be friends with a... Um, well, you guys probably have heard of Marianne Fons, and she was very instrumental in getting the um, Iowa Quilt Museum started, and that turned out to be the second. It, it was kind of a ready-made exhibit because I'd already written the catalog, basically. Right. Um, right. So I mentioned that because I do collect in the – I then have curated a show um, on string-pieced quilts, which is another topic that really – again, like you were saying, Susan, those people who really used everything up and – um, didn't waste. It's that same sort of thing I admire. And I, so I have bought a few string piece quilts, few feed set quilts. And um, that exhibit, by the way, started at the Iowa Quilt Museum and it's going to be at the New England Quilt Museum um, in April through July. Is it so coming west week. at all? Anywhere near me? I'm, you know, way over in Washington. <laughs> well, there is a, there is a uh, quilt museum there, right? Not to my Portland. knowledge. No. I, you know, maybe, in, maybe in Portland, uh, maybe in Seattle, mm. but I live on the mm. eastern side of, of my state. Okay. So, yeah, there's... Well, there's one really thing I would here. say is quilts are really having a moment right now, I think. You know, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, the Chicago Art Institute have had shows recently. So hopefully something will come your way. <laughs> I hope so, too. But, yeah. So I have a question for you because I, too, love all things vintage. But because I'm a long-arm quilter, I tend to look for um, – and now my battery's running low. Okay, hang on a second. Oh, that's I, yours. Okay. Yep, that's mine. I'm going to run around and jiggle the wire because it is plugged in. One sec. Okay. I think everything reversed on the screen. Is... Yeah, I know. It messes with your head, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll start that hair. question over again. So I have a question for you. I too love all things vintage, but because I'm a long arm quilter, I tend to look for vintage tops or blocks that have never been finished. What mm. are some tips for what to look for in the fabrics? Like if I want to have some that contain feed sacks, what do I look for? 
So the best way that you can tell if a feedsack is a feedsack is to actually find the stitching holes, find a piece mm-hmm. of fabric with the stitching holes still on it. And they tend to persevere even through many washings. Um, the, and you'll often see a curve where the corner is. And a piece of feedsack fabric is about 43 by 36 inches, somewhere in there is about the size. But obviously, you're probably not going to find that if it's pieced into a top. Right. So um, there are a number of ways to do it. I And I think that uh, sometimes you'll find the stitching holes in a seam. Very frugal sewists would make sure to use every last bit. And so those holes would be in the seam. That, too, is a little bit unusual. Um, people often think that feed sacks have a loose texture, a loose weave, but that's not always true because you think you mentioned flour. Um, you know, obviously, if you put flour in something with a loose weave, it's all going to come out. So a lot of the feed sack fabric is flour sack, sugar sack, salt sack is very tightly woven and is comparable to dress goods. Um, so that's not necessarily always a way to tell. One of the best ways is to look at a lot of feed sacks. And I, I remember when I started this, uh, Gloria Hall, the person who I mentioned to her collection, could just look at something and say, oh, that's a feed sack, that's a feed sack. And I didn't understand. And and I'm not always right, but I often can do that now from having looked at many, many feed sacks. Um, so I think one of the thing, most common things that irritates me is I see things advertised as feed sack all the time, like this is a feed sack top, and they're usually 1930s dress print fabrics. Um, Interesting. They're, yeah, people Passing often... Passing off as feed sacks. Yes, which mm-hmm. are... Well, I mm-hmm. think people think they are, but um, they're often little, you know, ditzy prints, small um, florals and juvenile prints and all of that kind of it's thing. It's maybe but, a term that we quilters use a bit loosely to describe a type of print more than Mm -hmm. the actual feed sacking Mm -hmm. that could be that could be too yeah so all right so on the heels of that now then and this is a little while back already you designed one maybe more correct me if i'm wrong lines of fabric that are based on feed sack prints right so this is sort of one of the the stories of my career is um that i've just been very lucky in that and And also I've gotten very brave that I'm not afraid to ask things. So um, I started writing for American Patchwork or for Quilts and More. And then that wrote for them. And then I approached an edit. One of the stories I I wrote for Etsy, they asked me to go to Quilt Market. And that was this wonderful chance to get to know, get to see the industry from the inside. And so I said, sure, I'll go. And um, wrote a story about that for them. And in the meantime, one of the people that I uh, was supposed to write about was Lisa Alexander, who was the marketing manager, an amazing person, wonderful person for Moda Fabrics. And I didn't know her at the time, but I was at Quilt Market and I was supposed to write this profile. So I thought I'll go talk to her. And at that point she said, would you ever write for us? And I said, sure. And that's been, I started writing for Moda in something like 2000. I don't know, a long time ago, (laughs) 2010, maybe more than that. Um, And writing profiles for them and, and writing catalog copy and writing for their blog. And um, so I got to know people at Moda over the years. And actually when I did my uh, feed sack book, one of the people I interviewed was Cheryl 
Freiberg, who was the design director then, and for many, many decades at Moda, and super knowledgeable about fabric. And Moda also has an, a great collection of their own fabric. They have a little fabric library room. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So she, so, you know, she knew all about them. So I interviewed, I interviewed a lot of people, contemporary people like Cheryl also to find out where feed sacks fit in, because as you mentioned, contemporary quilters love them still. Um, so she knew about the book and I took her a copy. I gave everyone I interviewed a copy and I have a daughter in Austin, Texas. And so I often drive down every year to see her. And so I had stopped at Moda and taken Cheryl her copy. And the next day she emailed me and said, would you want to design a line of fabric based on feed sacks? And, you know, to be honest, it's nothing I ever thought I would do. You know, I write about people who are creative because I just love it. Kind of what you're saying about having a podcast, you know, that you get to talk to interesting people. And um, that's exactly why I write the things that I do. So I, I never intended for that to happen, but it's been a very exciting adventure. I've just, my fifth line is out right now. It's called morning light. I think the yardage just hit the stores yesterday. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's been very much fun. And then along those lines, a good friend, who lived down the street and I started Clark street quilts designing patterns. And, um, she's, she's going to finally step down, but that's been a, a real, she, she's got the math mind. I do not. <laughs> so we're a good, we're a very good team. I mean, she's an amazing quilter and has wonderful design sense also. But, um, so we, that's another thing that's happened along the way that I hadn't counted on happening, but has been very much fun too. So, Opportunities. so yeah, I've enjoyed it. I love that. Right. I love that. Right. So you did mention very briefly that um, a collection that you've curated is going to New England. Did you say that? Any other things so, that are on the horizon that our listeners could be looking for over the next few weeks or months? Yes. Well, I on my web page, on my website, I do have a list of my talks. And one of the ones that's coming up on March 19th, um, and this is, you could come to my talk, but also do not miss this exhibit. The Ken Burns Quilt Collection is going to be in Peoria, Illinois at the Riverfront Museum there. And they're doing a lot of quilt programming in conjunction with it. So I'll be giving a talk on March 19th. Um, and, how, and how long does that run? Because this podcast may not be out yet then, and people will be very sad if it's over. How long does oh, no, the exhibit it's just, run? It's, it's just opening. So I cannot oh, okay. tell you how long, but it, it literally opened, I think, last week. Um, okay. So it'll be there for some months. So we're and talking yes, in my, March right now. So I'll, we'll, we'll make, we'll put links right, to I'll that probably, in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the string theory, it's called string theory quilts of the past and present. I can't remember the exact title, but it was at the Iowa quilt museum and it's going to be traveling to the new England quilt museum. And that will be from April to July. And then I have several talks lined up. Also, they're listed on my website. Um, usually, I, most people are interested in hearing about feed sacks. So I do go out and talk about feed sacks. And I take a lot of samples with me and share them. And my favorite thing about it is people also bring their, you know, I've had so many people bring the dress they wore as a baby that their mother yes. made out of feed sacks. Or, you know, it's just, I love the stories that I get to hear. You know, it's funny, when I first started writing the book, people said to me, oh, 
you're not you're gonna have trouble. People hated feed sacks. They threw out their feed sack quilts because they were a sign of poverty and people didn't want to remember those hard times. And I did find one person like that, but almost everyone else was so delighted to talk to me about it. And it's like that story I told you about the woman whose mother made those dresses for her. I think that I think that the women I talk to are mostly the children of the women who were working so hard and making the feed sack dresses. And so they have these fond memories of these dresses their mothers made for them or the hard work their mothers did. And also I found that most of them, their friends were also wearing feed sack dresses. So it wasn't like it was, they were singled out, you know, as being poor and having to wear sack dresses. So no, there's a lot of fondness for sacks, which is lovely. And it is just such a remarkable tribute. I mean, I can see how people would view it as, you know, the use of cotton as a nod to slavery or or just a reminder of the poverty that existed in those years. But it is also such a tribute to the resilience of the human spirit to move forward, to make the best of the situation that you're in. It's remarkable. I agree. And I think one thing that's really interesting, I found there's a lot of interest among younger sewists in feed sacks. And I think it's because there's this real recognition of our need for sustainability now. Um, And that was very much a a way of repurposing, you know, that they, that they see as having contemporary relevance. So. Absolutely. I mean, that is always admirable using a thing Mm -hmm. for more than one reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. So before we go, I wondered if you'd have some little gem of wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners. It can be about, you know, opportunities or about your craft or about life in general, whatever you like, a little thought you'd like to leave with us. I think for me, um, and I think it's really true for everyone else that sometimes it's hard to see the end point of what you're doing or where you're going. But my whole career in textiles has been one thing leading to another. And I think that as you grow and develop and change and learn new things, you're adding skills and awareness and knowledge and all of those things build on each other. So I think, um, you know, don't have, and even if it's something you do that you don't like, well, that's important to know too, you know, I'll never make a Dresden plate. I couldn't stand it. But, you know, I think that, that you, Everything you do, everyone you meet, um, it can lead to other opportunities. And I think I think the thing to remember, too, is to say yes to them, to not think, oh, I'm not good enough. I can't do that. But to say yes to those opportunities, because um, who knows where it will lead. Great advice. Thank you for that. And thanks so much for joining me. This has been a real pleasure to hear your stories. Thank you, Susan. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you, my friends, for tuning into the show. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcast or the listening app of your choice? And do share this episode with your friends as well. It really helps other listeners to find the show so they can enjoy these stories too. Plus, I would love to hear from listeners who'd like to nominate a crafter with a story to tell. If you know such a person, or you are one, email me at info at stitchedbysusan.com. So until next time, may your sorrows be patched and your joys be quilted.